Hi, my name's Tori and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Letitia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work. Hi, my name is Lydia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in a team and solve conflict. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things. Hello, my name is Liz Crow. And I'm Jesse Spur. Welcome to another episode of Five Things. And today we are welcoming Kath Willis who is the physiotherapy team leader for the Babies Obstetrics and Pelvic Physiotherapy here at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. Welcome, Kath. Thanks, Liz and Jessie. It's very nice to be here. And you're going to talk to us about pelvic floor today. Um, So that's something that should be relevant to absolutely everybody. Exactly. Kath, nice to meet you. A non-nurse, but uh, an expert in this area. I've got to profess I'm probably going to learn a fair bit in this episode, and I'm really interested in getting your origin story. I'm assuming you, when you were training to be a physio, you weren't thinking you were going to specialize in pelvic floor and babies and obstetric area. Is that a fair assumption? Yeah, that's a fair assumption. When I finished university, I was very interested in working in the hospital system, but in areas like intensive care and trauma. Um, Both of my parents are school teachers though, so I've definitely got the education gene uh, in my makeup, in my genetic makeup. So I became involved at a hospital in Sydney with teaching evening antenatal classes and that's really where my interest in this area started from. So as the years went by, I worked in obstetric care with people during pregnancy and after having their babies. And that then expanded to learning a lot more about the pelvic floor system as well. After I had my own children, I had more of a personal investment in making sure that I understood how it all worked. So that's how my journeys progressed. Fantastic. Well, let's let's dive straight into it. So your number one is, what is your pelvic floor and where do you find it? Yes, great question. And lots of people are very curious about this. So your pelvic floor is made up of muscles, nerves, blood vessels and connective tissue or or fascia, but most people are aware of the muscles of the pelvic floor. So our pelvic floor sits in the base of our pelvis like a hammock or a sling and the pelvic floor sort of wraps from front to back, left to right and up the side walls of the pelvis as well. So it's quite a significant structure. Um, We have superficial pelvic floor muscles and deep pelvic floor muscles. We're learning more each day about the function or role of each of the muscles. So, for example, just to get a little bit technical, the levator arni muscles actually have less to do with control of urine than we thought previously. It's predominantly something called the internal urethral sphincter that helps us with our bladder control. So this means that our instructions to patients about doing their exercises has changed over time. Um, Because the pelvic floor is internal and out of sight, we often have patients who report that they are unsure of how to use these muscles. It's really difficult to isolate these muscles. 
So if you compare how much of the surface of the brain is allocated to our facial muscles or hands, there's actually very little emphasis on our pelvic floor muscles. Okay, so you've said that, you know, that it's constantly changing. I remember in aerobics many, many years ago, we used to finish each class with, you know, doing our pelvic floor, you know, taking it up in the lift, one, two, three, hold, one, two, three. Is that still something we should be doing? It really depends on the nature of the problems that our patients present with. So depending on what symptoms they have, it might be that it is those bigger lifting muscles that need some work or strengthening, but sometimes it can be much more specific muscles that we really need to focus on. So that's where we're learning more and changing our instructions about exercises. So more like remediation and fixing and supporting things rather than just going, I've got to do bicep curls for my pelvic floor. So it's not preconditioning work as much. Yes. And that's actually a really good analogy, Jesse. I often say to people that um, the bicep muscle, you can see it, you can feel it working so easily. And yet our pelvic floor, because it's on the inside, it is more challenging for people to work out how to use those muscles. So it's a bit more, it's a bit more niche it's a little bit more specialised when we're doing these exercises. I know we're going to get into the gender or sex assigned to birth differences in terms of the importance and function of pelvic floor, but you, I did pick up that you said we're learning more and more about this every day. Is there some element of that because this has a disproportionate effect on um, female function and therefore like a lot of uh, medical conditions is, or clinical conditions has been under-researched? Yes and no. Um, we have some really fabulous researchers, physiotherapy researchers here in Brisbane who have looked a lot at um, the pelvic floor muscle function of people assigned male at, at birth. So that's given us a real wealth of knowledge and a huge increase in our understanding of these pelvic floor muscles and conditions. Often with um, people who are assigned female at birth or people who have gone through pregnancy and and childbirth, for example, there's this attitude in the community that you just should expect that you're going to have problems with things like your bladder control or prolapse after having a baby. It's, It's expected, it's accepted, and often there's not as much emphasis put on trying to fix these problems as we as we should be. So, Liz and Jesse, I'm really looking forward to being able to explain more today about how we can be proactive and also preventative in terms of looking after our pelvic floor. Great. So, number two is what role does the pelvic floor play for men and women? Right. For any person, the pelvic floor has some important basic functions. It contracts or switches on to help maintain continence. So that might be continence of urine or continence of feces or even continence of flatus or wind. This can be in a passive way or an active way. For example, we might consciously squeeze our muscles when we feel a sneeze coming in order to maintain bladder control. So that's common no matter which gender you were assigned at birth or or biological sex. Um, The activity of the pelvic floor muscles also helps to support the weight of our internal organs like the bladder and bowel or vagina and uterus, and it provides support to our core, and that includes muscles like our abdominal muscles and muscles that line the spine as well. 
And for, for all people, and this is a really interesting point, and I think it's something that it's important for, for all of us to understand, is that our pelvic floor muscles contract rhythmically when we orgasm. So it's nice to think that there's a really positive or pleasurable side to the pelvic floor as well. What most people don't understand is that we also need our pelvic floor muscles to relax in order to pass urine, to pass feces, and to allow for things to come into our pelvis, for example, during intercourse. Specifically for people who are assigned female at birth with a vagina, the pelvic floor can undergo more strain and stress as a result of hormonal cycles, like when you get your period, um, pregnancy and birth. Other times of our life can impact our pelvic floor more as well, like with all of the changes of menopause. Our muscles can weaken, our mucus lining can become thinner and drier, and there are other comorbidities that can affect our bladder and bowel function as well. For people assigned male at birth, the wonderful aging process can cause enlargement of the prostate gland, which might make passing urine more difficult. Or if they have a prostatectomy or radiation therapy or androgen deprivation therapy for prostate cancer, this can cause changes to the continence mechanisms as well. Um, we, as I said earlier, we have some really wonderful physiotherapy researchers here in Brisbane who have been publishing great information about continence mechanisms in males. So it stands out to me that there's a really broad group of people that we're going to likely encounter on any medical or surgical ward or anywhere in the hospital looking after people that are going to have either some known history of dysfunction um, of their pelvic floor or possibly unknown, and we may be seeing it manifest in any of the things you've given examples with, like continence, pain, discomfort, um, a range of different stuff. Yeah, that's very true. And particularly when it comes to things like incontinence, it's such a taboo subject. You will often find that people have never spoken to anyone outside of their family about some of the symptoms that they have. And often when they come in for a physiotherapy appointment, because we have longer in our appointment times to build rapport with our patients, often we're the ones that they're disclosing the severity of their symptoms to. I've certainly had patients who have come to see me for appointments who might have been comfortable enough to talk to their doctor or GP about bladder control problems, but have never divulged that they also are lacking control of their bowel. And that can have a big impact on their emotional status and their quality of life. So I was aware that your pelvic floor, you know, you hear often, I've got lots of friends who have had vaginal deliveries that sneezing, coughing, laughing really hard can cause incontinence of urine. But I wasn't aware that the pelvic floor, you know, if you've got problems, dysfunction with it, that you can also be incontinent of feces or poo. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. And if you think about it, if you're incontinent of urine, there are lots of things like continence pads or continence underwear that you can buy online or at the supermarket and no one really needs to know that you've got that problem. If you're incontinent of feces, there's often an odour associated with that, which makes it more difficult to, to manage or to live with. And if you've got flatal incontinence, people can actually hear that, which is quite embarrassing. So you might be with a group of friends and laughing and you can't control your wind. So people can hear that, which can make it really embarrassing as well. Yeah. 
Um, how much stigma is there still attached to all of this? Because, you know, do we know what the incidence or prevalence is of people with pelvic floor problems in the community or is it, would it be so underreported it's hard to give a figure? I think that we have a better understanding now. There's an organisation in Australia called the Continents Foundation, which does regular surveys to try and work out what the incidence is in the, in the general population. So we know that for all Australians, probably about one in three have some form of incontinence. In terms of anal incontinence or faecal incontinence, it's probably much lower at around 10%. So urinary incontinence is more common. We also know that during pregnancy and immediately after childbirth, symptoms of incontinence can be more prevalent as well. And that's often when someone's focus is completely on their new baby. They don't often put a lot of time or invest a lot of effort into looking after their own body and their own healthcare needs. So that's why it's fantastic, especially at a hospital like ours, that we've got the services that can support these people. So number three is the common myths about the pelvic floor. What are they? Okay, so some of the things that, that I hear from people or that I'm aware are myths about the pelvic floor, number one would be that it's always a weakness problem of the muscles and that doing hundreds of pelvic floor squeezes a day can fix any bladder, bowel or sexual problem. It's more common than we realise that the pelvic floor muscles can be overactive, often as a result of pain conditions or stress and anxiety. So physiotherapists can help with this overactivity of the pelvic floor muscles. If you have an overactive pelvic floor, can you still have incontinence? Yes, you can. You can still have incontinence, um, especially with things like what we call overflow incontinence where the bladder might be overly full and it reaches its capacity and urine can still leak out, um, or also, for example, with the bowel as well. So that's why, you know, if someone's embarrassed to talk about it, there's a stigma attached to it, them just doing hundreds of pelvic floor muscles could actually be exacerbating the problem rather than leading to a solution and why it's important to seek out the services of, you know, potentially a, a GP or a physio who specialises in this area. Yes, it's, it's always better to try and get that individual assessment and individual care so that we can pinpoint what has caused the problem and that way we can look at the, the managing interventions much more easily. Okay, what other myths might we have? Um, another myth, and you know, um, Liz, you were talking earlier about your aerobics days and I certainly remember quite a few of those as well. Something that we hear a lot from patients is that they go to the gym and their personal trainer has already taught them how to do pelvic floor exercises. But really what they're doing are things like bridging exercises where they're using their glutes or even just pelvic tilts, which is a really nice stretch for your lower back, but it's not going to specifically activate your pelvic floor. So those other types of exercises may work larger, more global muscles around the pelvis and hips, but we need to be really specific and isolate our exercises if we want to target the pelvic floor muscles. Are there any other myths that we should debunk today? Yeah, a couple more that I've thought of. Um, and this is one of these 
has changed fairly recently. Um, there's there's a lot of thinking that if you are sitting on the toilet and you stop the flow of urine midstream with your muscles, that that could lead to urinary tract infections. But actually practicing this flow stop of urine can be very helpful for people who have symptoms of urinary incontinence because it targets that striated urethral sphincter, which is one of the really specific parts of the anatomy that can help with incontinence. Um, This also gives the patients a way of assessing their own strength at home, and that can help to build confidence and self-efficacy for them. Yeah. Never never thought of a P-flex. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good term for it. <laughs> you might have started something new, Jesse. <laughs> um, and we sometimes hear from different people as well that they will take themselves to the toilet to empty their bladder as soon as they feel any sort of sensation to go to the toilet. So often they'll be emptying their bladder with very small volumes in the bladder itself. So it's always good to have the ability to hold on for five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, you're not going to cause any harm to your body by deferring or holding on when you need to pass urine. So lots of nurses, I'm sure Jesse would agree with this, uh, lots of healthcare professionals, including Allied Health, we regularly hold urine for a long time. We're working busy shifts and it just gets delayed, delayed. Is that, is that dangerous for you? for your pelvic floor to really overfill your bladder and wait until you're absolutely busting to go? It's definitely dangerous for your bladder itself. And I, yeah, I always talk about three specific workforce groups. There's hairdressers, teachers, and healthcare workers who tend to hold on for too long. And that's because we don't always get that opportunity to go to the bathroom when we need to. So overstretching of the bladder can cause problems. Um, kind of a little bit like the elastic on a really old pair of underpants, the bladder can overstretch and it starts to lose its ability to recoil so that you might have a really big bladder volume and when you go and sit on the toilet, it takes a while to initiate the flow of urine or the flow of urine is really slow or you can't fully empty all of that urine out of your bladder. So when you've got to go, you've got to go. Yes, I think that, as I said, it's that balance between feeling an urge and knowing that you can hold on for a little while if you need to, but then also not ignoring that urge for hours at an end. Great. A long-range fuel tank's not a badge of pride. Yeah. (laughs) That's right. We don't necessarily (laughs) want to be camels. One more myth that I'd really like to debunk is that pelvic floor muscle exercises are boring. Our bodies and muscles and brains need variety and challenge, so it's really helpful to see a pelvic floor physio for ideas on how to maximise your muscle function. There are so many different ways that we can do these exercises, so many different ways that we can stay motivated to to keep it interesting. So I'm probably have been doing all the wrong things, but again, going back to the old aerobics days, you know, they used to say when you're driving the car, you know, go up in the lift hold, go down in the lift, hold. I, I, I must admit when I'm driving, I still do, do that sometimes. Is that a bad thing? No, it's not a bad thing at all. I think what you've got to imagine is that your pelvic floor muscles are made up of different types of muscle fibres. There are fast twitch muscle fibres like um, a sprinter at the Olympics who runs 100 metres in under 10 seconds. 
And there are also your slow twitch fibers, which are your endurance fibers. So it's certainly good to do your exercises in a way that focuses on each of those different types of muscle fibers. So doing a nice, slow, gentle lift and hold and then relaxing your muscles is one way to keep your muscles strong and healthy, but also doing fast, firm squeezes with your pelvic floor for power is important as well. And I think anyone who's had a full bladder holding a baby and needs to sneeze would recognize the value in being able to do that. So women have always been encouraged to do this, but people who were assigned as male at birth, they should absolutely be doing this as well. I think that for people assigned male at birth, there's a different time in their life when they need to be aware of their pelvic floor muscles. That's usually most associated if they need to have treatment for prostate cancer or if they've had some kind of surgery to um, reduce the size of their prostate gland to help with passing urine. So we know that there are really specific cues for male pelvic floor muscles. So for example, asking a patient to lift their testicles up inside is often a really good way to get those muscles activating or imagine that they're trying to draw their penis back inside their body is a really good way of getting their pelvic floor muscles working. And when we think about even refining some of the cues that we use for females, it might be thinking about that stop the flow of urine or another thing that's coming out more recently is thinking about trying to move your clitoris back towards the opening of your vagina as well. So it does start to get very specific and detailed. Number four is prevention and improvement of the pelvic floor. So what can we do to prevent it and what can we do to improve it? Okay, I think prevention is one of the things that I'm really interested in and passionate about because as a physiotherapist, I've had a lot to do with some advocacy work to try and look at management of some of the injuries of birth trauma that birthing people here in Australia might experience. So prevention can include screening during pregnancy to reduce the risk of perineal trauma during birth. This is where we need to work with our colleagues to help improve outcomes for birthing people. So it needs to be a group effort. We need to work with our midwives, our GPs, our obstetricians and gynecologists, and also our pelvic floor physios. There are certain things that put birthing people more at risk of physical injury to the pelvic floor like having a larger baby or even pushing for a prolonged time in the second stage of labour. We need to work together to reduce these risks. Pelvic floor physios can also contribute by teaching correct activation and relaxation of the pelvic floor muscles during pregnancy because if you're aware of all of the mechanics that occur when you're trying to push a baby out, you want those pelvic floor muscles to relax and lengthen rather than tightening up and closing at that point in time. Um, We can also teach perineal massage during pregnancy, which has been shown with research to help reduce the risk of perineal injuries during birth. And we can educate people about different positions for labour and birth as well. There's also good evidence to show that educating patients prior to prostate surgery on correct pelvic floor muscle technique can improve their incontinence symptoms after their surgery. 
And pelvic floor muscle training will help a majority of cases with either urinary or faecal incontinence. However, we always want to aim for individual assessment and prescription of exercises. Once someone has got the right technique, we can then keep their motivation up with group exercise classes, sending them video links to remind them to do their pelvic floor exercises, or even just practicing their exercises with their friends. I often have um, older older women, for example, in their 60s and 70s who come along and they're so fascinated and engaged by all of the education to do with bladder and bowel and prolapse and pelvic floor. When they come back for their next appointment, they'll say to me, I had lunch with some of my friends and I told them all what you said and now we're all practicing our exercises and we can all hold on at the end of lunch for 10 minutes before we go to the toilet. So it's really lovely to see that community sharing of knowledge. Yeah. And, you know, it's that whole thing that once you lose the stigma and you can get it out there, then people can do the prevention. People are more likely to seek uh, assistance um, if they actually do have a problem. Exactly. It's easier for them to access the care that they need. So number five is, you know, what are the considerations that healthcare professionals, but particularly the bedside nurse, should have for people when we're talking about the pelvic floor and their inpatients? Often as an inpatient, the team is focusing on what admitted that patient, what the condition was, like a fractured bone or a neurological problem. People are more affected by their bladder and bowel problems than we care to admit. If a patient experiences deconditioning as a result of their hospital stay, then getting to the toilet is going to be harder for them. So simple strategies to reduce this impact might be checking fluid intake. Is the patient now drinking lots more fluid than normal? They have the lovely trolley come around with morning tea, afternoon tea, lunch, supper. Sometimes their fluid intake might have doubled during their hospital stay and this is going to have an impact on how much urine they produce and also how many times they need to go to the toilet. Do we need to make sure they know how to access the bathroom Or when it's a shared bathroom, where is the next closest toilet? They might feel incredibly shy about using a shared bathroom or knocking on a door if someone's been in that shared bathroom for a longer period of time. Uh, We can also just check in with our patients to ask if they know how to do their pelvic floor exercises. You don't necessarily need to lie them down and do an internal examination to teach them how to do pelvic floor exercises. We can give them really simple instructions like pretend you're on the toilet and you're stopping the flow of urine. Those are the muscles that you need to use to help strengthen and improve your bladder control. The other thing we can do too is teach them really simple deferment techniques So, Jesse and Liz, I don't know whether either of you are starting to feel like you need to go to the bathroom yet, but (laughs) if you're ever stuck in a meeting or stuck in the car and that urge to go to the toilet is increasing, a couple of really simple things you can do are inside your head, say no to your bladder. Tell your bladder to calm down, that it can hold on if it needs to. Another thing that helps is counting backwards from 100 And if you count backwards by threes or fives so that you have to focus on that counting a little bit more, that takes your mind's focus off what your bladder's doing. And my other good trick is just putting your finger across your top lip. If you press your finger across your top lip, that 
automatically calms your urge to go to the toilet. So we can all practice that now. What? I didn't know that. Yeah. Sometimes I'm busting in the car on the way home from work. So you think finger to the top lip. Yep. Just press your finger on your top lip. It makes you look really intelligent because people think that you're pondering, pondering pondering life. All the deep philosophical (laughs) questions when really you're just trying to hold on before you can go to the toilet. You're just trying not to pee your pants. Um, Can I ask, you know, sometimes people have had birth trauma or, you know, for other unknown reasons, people's pelvic floor, you know, becomes less functional. Once that damage has occurred, how much can you recover? It really depends on what has been damaged. If it's just a case of the muscles being weak due to lack of use, that's one situation where we can make an improvement by teaching them how to do an exercise program at home. If someone as a result of birth trauma, for example, or some kind of pelvic injury like pelvic trauma from a car accident, if they've had damage to the nerves that supply the pelvic floor muscles, that can be a little bit more difficult to rehabilitate. But we have really cool little devices called e-stims machines. So it's like a type of TENS machine. And you can either use sticky surface electrodes over the pelvic floor muscles, or you can use internal electrodes that can either go into the anal canal or the vagina, which can help to give a stimulus to the pelvic floor muscles to help strengthen them again as well. So that's just one way that we could look at trying to improve some of those symptoms. Now, I had both of my grandparents, as they got older, um, were very farty, you know, and they you'd see them like kind of obviously get the urge to go to the toilet. They'd struggle out of the couch and then they'd fart all the way down the hall going, excuse me, excuse me. Is some of that, you know, your pelvic floor and can you improve that in older age? Most definitely it's part of the pelvic floor because we have a muscle called the sphincter that wraps around the opening to the anus. So part of that sphincter muscle we have conscious control of. And all we need to think about is gently drawing that muscle in like we're stopping wind. That's how we do exercises for that sphincter muscle. So as long as there hasn't been nerve damage to that muscle, anyone should be able to do exercises for that muscle. But I think the other thing to recognise, I just have to say in case my mum ever listens to this podcast, she was always horrified when we were children if we farted, um, that it's quite normal to pass wind about 14 times a day. Having gas in your rectum and letting it go is a normal part of our bodily functions. But as I said earlier in the podcast, it can be really embarrassing for people when they can't control their wind and it's making an audible noise. So you could look at dietary things, for example, reducing some of the foods that might cause excessive gas. But also, as I mentioned, doing those squeezes for your sphincter muscle should give you better control. There you go. One of the really tangible things that just came into my mind there is we often get, we'll tell our bed bound patients um, to do their calf exercises and all of these things, but probably don't think, I, I must admit, I haven't thought as much about what being bed bound and having that deprivation of gravity and impact on the pelvic floor activation, it can do over time in bed. So uh, that's definitely a change in practice that I'll be doing as well as your calf muscle exercises, do your, um, do your pelvic floor. 
yeah, exercises that's, in bed. That's great, Jesse. I'm really happy to hear that you're going to make that change. And like you said, you know, lying down flat, you're not using those muscles. But we know that even people, when they practice standing up from sitting in a chair, your pelvic floor muscles will automatically switch on to some degree. So that is still helping those muscles to work better. Yeah. All right, we've learned so much more about the pelvic floor today than I ever knew was possible, so I'm going to have an attempt at summarising it. So your number one is what is your pelvic floor and where do you find it? And I guess what I hadn't taken into consideration is your pelvic floor is not just a muscle. It's a whole range of nerves and blood vessels, et cetera, that all go up and that they, it sits like a significant structure that you said is similar to a hammock and you find it in the base of your pelvis. And that because it's internal and out of sight that we sometimes don't think about it, but like any other muscle, it needs to be used and exercised. And that one in every three Australians may suffer from um, bladder incontinence or urine incontinence. And 10% of Australians may have anal or fecal incontinence. So this is a really big problem. Your number two is what role does the pelvic floor play for both men and women. And I guess, again, this was a new thing for me. I didn't know that people who were assigned as male at birth could have problems with their pelvic floor, but this is a, any person can have this and that it's really important for us to understand that we've got to kind of contract it and switch it on to help be continent of urine, bladder and bowel. And that there are certain things throughout the course of either a male or a woman's life um, that we need to be really mindful because the pelvic floor supports the weight of the bladder, the bowel, uh, and the uterus. And that um, it, it, it not only needs to learn how to activate, but sometimes we also need to learn how to make it relax so that we can pass whatever we need to do. And that you said for people who are assigned female at birth, um, stress, hormones, pregnancy, birth and menopause can all be things that can impact um, the pelvic floor for anyone. So can any sort of trauma to the pelvis. And for people who are assigned as male at birth, as the prostate gets bigger or people who um, get prostate cancer, this can be another issue that really affects the pelvic floor. Number three, you gave us a number of common myths about the pelvic floor. Number one is that it's always a weakness issue that needs squeezing, whereas your pelvic floor can also be overactive and that can cause problems. Um, that there are lots of other disciplines, I guess, you know, like people at the gym, your aerobics instructor, your PT who is saying, yes, you know, we do pelvic floor, but that anyone who's having any sort of pelvic floor issues really should see a specialist like a pelvic floor physiotherapist so that they can have an individual assessment. Um, and I love that you said pelvic floor muscles, um, when we're working them out, it shouldn't be boring. There should be a range of things. And if you're having any issues, please go and, and seek a specialty uh, physio um, for advice. Number four is the prevention and improvement of the pelvic floor. And you said, you know, prevention is so important and it might be really ideal for uh, people to go and get screening during pregnancy for any problems. Um, but often the pelvic floor needs a multidisciplinary approach that you can talk to your GP, your obstetric and gynecologist, your physiotherapist, 
Um, and for women who are pregnant, particularly if you have a, ra- a large baby or a long labor, it really might be worth the investment of going to see a physio afterwards. Um, that when we're preparing for pregnancy or for labor, that perineal massage um, can be important for looking after the pelvic floor, as can be exploring different positions for labor uh, and during birth. And for anyone who's having prostate surgery, also worth considering. I really took home, it needs an individual assessment. We can't just say it's the pelvic floor because that could be a whole range of issues. Yeah, that's exactly right. And your number five were considerations for the pelvic floor and the inpatient. Um, And Jesse made the lovely point that often, you know, when someone's immobile, we're saying, do your calf exercises, keep your legs moving. This could be a perfect opportunity to say, do your pelvic floor exercises. Um, If you are the bedside nurse and someone is incontinent of urine or feces to have a discussion with them about the pelvic floor, maybe you could refer that on to a physiotherapist. But we do know that there's lots of stigma associated with the pelvic floor. And sometimes, you know, as the bedside nurse, you could be the first person to highlight that um, and be able to assist someone to get some help. How did I go? Yeah, that's a fantastic summary. You did a very good job. (laughs) Yay. All right. I just wanted to say thank you so much, Kath, for joining us on Five Things. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen, and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at fivethingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at Liz Crow 2 and for me it's inject underscore orange we would absolutely love to hear your thoughts ideas or feedback thanks for listening to five things 